This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello, and welcome to Season 5, Episode Three of Commentary Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And Max isn't here today. He's on an away mission. Uh, we, we we will see if he returns. Depends on what color shirt that he's wearing. Yeah. Um, I told him gold. Wear gold. <laughs> we'll see if he listens, but yeah. uh, he should be back next week. We are going to be discussing... Uh, Jerry Taylor's first producing credit. This is part two in our series on Jerry Taylor. And that producing credit, writing producing credit, we're we're, we're looking at, we wanted to look at, uh, you know, her work as a writer, but we didn't want to just do every single one-off thing that she did. So we figure you look at, you know, her work as a writing producer, and then you hit all the big key shows. So we're going to look at her work as a writing producer on Quincy M.E., uh, a show which was created by Glenn A. Larson and Lou Shaw and starring Jack Klugman. Um, It ran for eight seasons, although it looks like it was really only seven seasons, but they split the first season up into like two halves, but whatever. Technically eight seasons. Technically um, eight, yeah. Over seven years, I guess. And uh, she came on in season five as a writer. Uh, she had only been writing uh, for television for a couple for about a year uh, prior to this, and she had just done a couple of uh, one-off episodes on on various TV shows, which no one's ever heard of. And then this seemed to be kind of her regular gig, although she had done a number of freelance things during this time period on shows like. Little House on the Prairie and Incredible Hulk and some other things. She had written a few uh, after-school specials and TV movies. And this was the show which she had done more work on than anything else up until this point. Uh, She was a writer starting on season five. And then uh, during season eight, which was the last season of the show, she became a producer as well. And it seems like she had a, a... pretty big influence on the show on the whole because uh she had written a lot of key episodes uh during this season but before we get into her specific work maybe we should just talk about quincy me oh glad as as a series now i had never seen this show up until this point i had always been aware of it but i've never actually watched it I, i take it you were aware of it I was aware of it. Uh, I was not its uh, target demographic, but uh, <laughs> some people in my house uh, were, and uh, I know that my I, my grandfather watched it for at least a couple of years because I remember the opening, and I remember um, being disoriented enough uh, to think, why is Oscar Madison, in, where's Felix what's going on right now. So, you know, I, I was very aware of television at an early age, like going back and seeing it now, it, it still evokes that same sort of like warm, fuzzy feeling. It's like sitting in grandpa's room and it's like, Hey, I'm watching TV with grandpa, you know? And it's like, what's going on? 
Yeah, I, I get the same impression, actually, even though I had never seen it. Maybe it's just because of that time period or whatever, mm -hmm. or knowing, you know, my grandparents. Like, I kept on thinking, like, this is, I guarantee you, my grandparents watched oh, this yeah. show, you know? Yeah. My grandmother being a huge Murder, She Wrote fan, seems oh. like this would be right up her alley. And the music and everything, you know, it just feels like something from that era, you know? Yeah, oh, it's definitely of its time. And there are so yeah. many things going back and, uh, you know, watching these episodes and also, you know, going back and sort of like re-familiarizing myself with it, you know, and catching snippets of the other ones, you know, cause, you know, so long as they're, they're there streaming, why not, you know, yeah. take a couple of pieces out of it. And like, it definitely belongs to that era. There are so many TV tropes from that time period that are like, it hits all of the notes. You need this, and you need this, and you need this, and this is what makes a successful teleplay. And yeah. it, it just it goes by those numbers, and you know, obviously, audiences enjoyed it. If it's you know, it's got eight seasons, that's a pretty yeah. good run. It, yeah, it, to me, what I did prior to watching the the Jerry Taylor episodes was I watched the pilot because I was like, I want a, mm -hmm. a good baseline for what this show is, and that's kind of what pilots are designed to do. And as I was watching it, you know, like the plot of the pilot is basically like there's an investigation into a, a crime and it seems to be an open and shut case. And Quincy doesn't think that it is. And he, uh, you know, says, hey, guys, come on, look at this. Look at this evidence here. And the cops are like, Quincy, you don't know what you're talking about. This doesn't yeah. make any sense. You know, the simplest solution is, is usually the correct one. And he's like, no, no, look at this. And the whole time I kept on thinking, like, this is kind of cool how this guy is doing his thing and using forensic medicine in order to solve a case. It's kind of weird that the cops aren't <laughs> using him for, like, the, the, right. the reason why they have him. Like, right. <laughs> Yeah, there, there, like, <laughs> there seems to be a, a sense of... Um, I, I think you hit it on the head there where it's like uh, not just the pilot, but like moving forward, you learn to trust this guy's hunches too. You know, I'm yeah. telling you, this is what happened. It's like, ah, maybe I'll go look into that. Maybe I won't drag my feet on things and listen to Quincy from time to time because he seems to have a good head on his shoulders. It's not even hunches. Sometimes it's flat yeah. out like the science says that this happened and they're like, what are you talking about? No, right. we have an eyewitness. And it's like, dude. <laughs> yeah. But I kind of, you know, watching that, and, and I don't know how most episodes of Quincy are, um, but I just kind of assumed that that would be how every episode was. You know, that it was like, you know, there's there's a crime and it looks like this is what happened and then he's going to use science in order to determine that something else happened and he's right. going to stick it, you know, like this one, it had like, he was in the middle of a gunfight at one point <laughs> and all this stuff. He went down to Mexico and his girlfriend got like pushed out of a moving car and ended up in the hospital. It's pretty thrilling. It is pretty thrilling, yeah. you know? And I'm like, this is great. And yet, and I can see how this would be fun to watch. But at the same time, I can't imagine watching this for eight years nonstop. You know, I, again, going back to the whole idea of being of its time, you know, I, I think that we all have lost perspective on you had three choices. 
<laughs> and it was you were going to watch Quincy or you were going to watch whatever was up against it on ABC or NBC and or CB. Which network did this run on? I want to say NBC because I okay. know that most of the Glenn Larson shows were on NBC, but I honestly don't know. Okay. Well, whichever one it was on, the other two were up against it. I mean, they didn't even have, you know, Fox at that time. So no. there was nothing. And yeah, so I'm sure that that helps uh, a show. And, you know, somebody comes home, they want to watch something. You you could have done worse back then. Sure. You really could have done worse. Oh, yeah. It's totally watchable. Watchable, And I guess in sort of the... Uh the era when you don't have uh, VCRs and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and you don't have access to all of these episodes whenever you want them. Right. It's like if you want your Quincy fix, you're going to, you kind of want a specific thing. And if you can't watch your favorite episode again and again and again, they're just going to make your favorite episode again and again and again and call it new. Right. And give you that. Right. It, well, it's just like sequels before the rise of um, being able to rewatch stuff. Like sequels, mm-hmm. that's why they were cookie cutter. Uh, you know, you look at James Bond. Every James Bond movie, once they figured out the template, followed the same template. Like beat yeah. by beat, broken down the exact same way. And it's because, like you said, you couldn't call up your favorite, you know, your favorite episode at a whim. And, you know, let's say you go two weeks without seeing Quincy you're not going to mind that something's a little repetitive about it because you're there to watch Quincy do his thing. Sure. Yeah. It it was on NBC, by the way. Okay. For whatever that's worth. I stand corrected then. One last thing about Quincy on the whole. The opening title sequence, (laughs) I think it's kind of amazing. It is very much of its time. It definitely has that 70s vibe where you've got... You know, like three boxes uh-huh. or circles with montages of Quincy in action and stuff yep. like that. But the thing that is most intriguing about this to me, and I love like the the beginning where they have where he's like, "Gentlemen, you're gonna enter the you're about to enter the most uh, interesting part about the uh, police investigation or whatever it is and uh, yeah. forensic medicine." And then like he he reveals the dead body and like two of them pass out instantly right and then bat, like the third yeah. like keels over and starts <laughs> puking and stuff like this. And yeah. it's like, that's great. But there's one thing in there, which, you know, when I'm watching it the first time, I'm like, oh, okay. But there's a, 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 as part of the montage, you keep on cutting back to him in close up, looking intently at oh. like a body, Yep. you know, where he's examining like, an arm or something. Yes. And it keeps on cutting back to this in the montage. And then at the end, the big reveal mm-hmm. is that he's studying like a woman's arm. And this woman is like lying on his boat, his <laughs> trademark boat, I guess. Yep. And then he's like, here's some champagne. And then like he kisses her and it's like, oh, he's a ladies man too. And oh, look at that. It's a funny joke. We, you thought it was a dead body, but really he was examining the female form or something. Yes. And I'm like, that's funny. And then when I watched the second episode, it happened again, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember, that's funny. (laughs) And then by, like, the third or fourth time, you're like, they did this, like, literally, like, 148 times. (laughs) Yes. I wonder at what point it got old, but (laughs) good Uh, for them for sticking with this joke, because... (laughs) Yeah. Not not even changing, yeah, anything about it. It, it, Yes. It's definitely... a cute little short film of an opening, <laughs> but uh, even even with 
being unable to call up the DV- like at least the episodes themselves, even if they follow the same beats and everything, and it, it, and it's him going around and doing his thing. The circumstances change, whereas in the credits, it's just literally the same thing <laughs> over and over again. It's like even Dick Van Dyke by like season four learned to step around the ottoman instead of falling over it, right. you know? Right. You'd think they would change it up a little bit, but I guess not. So good for them. <laughs> yeah. You got to save money somehow. <laughs> so looking at uh, Jerry Taylor's work on the show, now we, we kind of skipped ahead and uh, went straight to season eight, which was her, her final season. I don't know if you watched any of the episodes that she had done prior to that, but I, I didn't. Um, season eight really did seem to be Taylor's arc in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, in the very first episode of the season, which was written by her, they introduce uh, a new character to the show, which was the character of Dr. Emily Hanover, played by Anita Gillette. Now, this is a character who was a psychiatrist, and she's introduced in the first episode, Baby Rattlesnakes, mm-hmm. and she becomes a love interest for Quincy. And she's basically in the entire season. There were 24 episodes in season 8, and she's in 17 of them, uh, listed in the credits as a special guest star. So kind of like the Dr. Pulaski of <laughs> Quincy yes. Emmy, I guess. Nice. Nice pull. But not nearly as annoying, so <laughs> that's good. Yeah, okay, I'll give you that, yeah. So what what did you think about this character? Uh, I think you're right. Like, there's a... She's definitely a modern woman, and I'm not saying that in, like, a dismissive way. I'm saying that in the sense that when you're watching the show, the whole thing that makes the character attractive to Quincy and attractive to the audience is that she is that... Um, the female foil for Quincy. Um, like, the it makes sense that they pursue that sort of love story with her. They, they very obviously wrote her to fill that role. The time period then is when people were talking about the ERA and stuff like that. And you can definitely see a lot of the modern sensibilities being worked out of treating women more equally in a relationship uh, and sort of the topics that were going on at the time because she's a very authoritative character, she's a very knowledgeable character, and she provides a lot of informa- a lot of exposition, really, about yeah. the, the situations that she's in in each episode. And you know, she seems to be a, a, an endless fountain of knowledge about just about everything. Yeah. And so she she's a natural companion for Quincy. Yeah, it it really is kind of interesting, especially in the way that they seem to be portraying the character like in the in the opening sequence and and in the the first episode even really where it's like oh well this is my girlfriend but no we're not we're just friends we're not you know serious and everything and he's right. a bachelor and he loves the bachelor life and everything like that and in this season they're like we're going to give him uh you know we're going to introduce a, a woman who's the opposite of all that stuff you know she's not like just a disposable girlfriend type for him. She is, you know, really someone who can stand up to him on on his terms. You know, she's not going to be sitting around waiting for him to do his job like the woman in the first episode is. He's going to be saying, hey, I need your help solving this case. And she's going to be like, nah, 
I don't want to do that. Right. Which she does in, in one episode. And yeah. um, that's that's really cool. And I would bet anything that Taylor was responsible for this character. You know, the sure. fact that she wrote the first episode that she was in, she took a, a, a very active role in um, the show during the season where she was introduced and has her arc. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that she's very similar to um, other Taylor characters that we see in things like Star Trek, you know? She's very sure. similar to Janeway in a lot of ways in that she's yeah. a scientist, you know, and all of these things, and it, it, it makes sense. So, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's pretty cool. And it really sort of shows Taylor putting her stamp on this show. You know, one of the things that I was kind of worried about in doing this was, like, these shows are so formulaic in general. Like, what aside from, you know, someone being maybe really good at, at procedurals, how do you see them stand out in particular? And even though I haven't seen any other Quincy ever, I can totally see Taylor in this stuff. I'll skip all the way down to the end of season eight and say that, you know, if we're, if we're looking for sort of her stamp and the, the creation of the strong female characters, uh, the simple fact that she has a basically a female dock worker in a very prominent appearance at the beginning of Cutting Edge, uh, yeah. you know, palling around with the guys and, you know, again, it speaks to that whole idea of, you know, equal treatment. It doesn't matter that there's a woman working on the dock. She's just one of the friends that's there hanging out and congratulating the guy on the birth of his kid. It's just, yeah, she's just there. Okay. So, so looking at, uh, her episodes, first we've got baby rattlesnakes, which was the, the, uh, first episode of season eight, which introduces the character of, of Dr. Hanover. And it's about troubled kids uh, who who have been in gangs and stuff like that, who have been in trouble with the law and are part of a program which essentially will give them a second chance uh, to try to, to clean up their act. And it's sort of a case of um, a kid being framed by some other kids and he's, you know, it looks like he's going to go to jail for murder and then they, you know, try to, to help him out and, and get him out of the situation. Um, the interesting thing to me about that is in terms of like looking at it as far as uh, Taylor's career is concerned, it's very similar to Star Trek in a lot of ways in that it's dealing with social issues of the time. Yeah. Which is something that we see repeatedly throughout this season, I think, or at least a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what did you think about Baby Rattlesnakes? Well, it's, it's definitely social justice television, and mm-hmm. I... I I don't have a specific uh, lens other than a sense that opening an episode with a drive-by shooting was <laughs> probably a little uh, I don't know the risque for the time like that w- that was a little over the edge when you think about it about what was being shown. Now it wasn't gory or bloody. It wasn't like watching you know uh, Game of Thrones or anything like that. But you definitely got what was happening and. It immediately opens with, oh, you know, something that people were obviously concerned about, which was violence on the streets and gang membership and and stuff like that. And I agree with you that in the Star Trek sense, it speaks to what's on everybody's mind in terms of like a, you know, a social ill and also setting up her character as 
somebody with a conscience, but also playing off of the other characters and really highlighting all the different positions. Uh, you know, you have the heavy, you have the politician who is the heavy in the situation and he wants to throw everybody away in jail because there's nobody to be, you know, and the where the episode gets a title, its title from where he says, you know, baby rattlesnakes are just as poisonous as full-grown rattlesnakes. Yes. They belong in a cage. I think it's a really fascinating way to look at the way people thought about this issue back in the early 80s. I have a feeling, again, it's just a feeling that this was pushing the envelope a little bit and they probably sensed that they needed to try to find new ways to push forward with the show to try to avoid, you know, the the acts at the end of the season. Yeah. So, because yeah. it's not like those sorts of things come out of nowhere. Obviously, the ratings indicated that they might not get continued and so they just maybe they decided to start taking chances with, yeah. with that sort of thing that could be yeah I, that that sort of idea of um important issues of the time or whatever mm-hmm. is made even more apparent apparent in in taylor's second episode of the season a cry for help um this was the teen suicide episode mm-hmm which to me was problematic in the sense that it really, really played like they were just telling you everything there is to know about teen suicide and how big of a problem this was. Mm -hmm. And it's like, while that information is important to get out, this may not be the best format because like you're saying uh, (laughs) with, with the character of Hanover, she really became just an exposition machine where all she did was say like, do you realize that in the next 24 hours, 50 people will try to commit suicide and 18 of those will be successful. Like that's literally a line of dialogue right. in this episode. <laughs> right. It, it, yeah. It's like, she's reading right off of a, a, a cute, a press release from a yes. suicide prevention hotline. And, and at times I feel like it does kind of dip into like, reefer madness territory where it's like <laughs> yeah six kids have jumped off of this building and there's probably even more that tried to kill them kids are killing themselves left and right you know i mean like yeah y- yeah i can i can understand teen suicide was an issue and still is an issue of course mm-hmm. but it's not like i mean six kids in one high school or or one college like i don't i'm sorry that seems to be just stretching it a little bit yeah it it (laughs) it does i you know you you said you mentioned uh like the format is sort of like an after school special at certain points and this is the one that is the most like an after school special you know because Mm -hmm. it's you have the kid who is um playing drums in his room all the time and locking the door. Like it's, it's one of those things where it, it plays like that after school special where you sit there and you say, this is a really important issue. And I get that you're trying to communicate that. And I appreciate what you're trying to say, but at the same time, you're setting up so many easy signs for people. Like why don't, like maybe we could construct this in such a way where it, you can understand how difficult it is to see that somebody's having an issue 
as right. opposed to and you know and they have the the father who flat out states at one point you know i have to blame this kid because otherwise it's my fault so i'm never going to admit that anything else and uh oh and klugman says uh oh don't get so focused maybe your other kids are trying to say something to you yes <laughs> and it's like okay number one that's not the greatest line and number two are you sure your bedside manner is working for a dad who just had his do- like it, this is not the best time to try to try you know tough love on this guy you know, right. he, he's and that, grieving. And that seemed like most of what they were doing in this episode. Like, you know, there were no signs. Oh, yeah, there there were signs. And you yeah. totally missed them. And it's like, well, thanks, Quincy. That was really, that's really right. helpful. You know, or Hanover, you're a psychiatrist. Well, what does saying that to a parent who just lost their kid do to their psyche, you know? Right. I mean, like, and, and it felt so shoehorned into this show. Like, there really isn't a place... For this because they're like well Quincy can you determine the cause of death well yeah she was shot but was she shot by herself or shot by someone else well let me do a, a psychiatric autopsy <laughs> right in order to determine and then basically what she does is she goes around and does the police's job as I right. see it you know yes. Establishing yes, motive and stuff like that by saying, like, well, was this girl suicidal? Uh, spoilers. Yes, she was. Okay. Right. So then it's my determination as coroner that he she killed herself with this with this gunshot, you know? Right. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, I know that this show is kind of built on that and taking yeah. that liberty of, like, there's this guy who's going to be solving these crimes like a cop would, you know, yeah. but, you know, with forensic medicine. But this is going just a little too far because he's not even using forensic medicine here in any way, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And the one thing I'll say, though, about this specific episode is there was that one moment in the van where he uh, he pulls out the spray bottle of stuff to uh, to highlight the blood that could be in the carpet. Yeah. And my twisted brain, the first thing it goes to is Dexter. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah I know. Where's your black light? No, 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 it doesn't work like that. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does feel in a lot of ways, like when I was watching this, I'm sort of like, this is sort of like the the prototype for shows like CSI. Oh, yeah. You know? Absolutely. Well, there's a little bit. Of, there's definitely CSI in it, but there's a little bit of, um, I would argue, like House about mm-hmm. this. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, he's not the the cantankerous antisocial guy. You know, he's obviously got a social life and everything, but he's the outcast. He's the guy that tells people what they don't want to hear, and he continually uses, like you said, science to defeat their presumptions about things. And uh, you know, so I, I think there are seeds of House. I think there are seeds of uh csi but i mean do you i don't know if i see anything else besides those two yeah i mean i don't know i mean csi has spawned so many clones yeah um literally and you know i mean ncis and everything like that it's just it yeah i I mean you know what that's probably why my brain defaulted and presumed that quincy was on cbs because it's like well that's where they all go now that's where all of the medical crime shows go that's true and it's also cbs has become the network for the network that people's grandparents watch you know the network that i'm terrified of getting into their target demographic (laughs) because i know i know it's been a long journey at that point 
Yep. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So I mean that that I think to me is the, the weakest episode of of the 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 Taylor episodes from season eight. And next came um, maybe the the most Taylor of them all, which was Quincy's wedding, which was a two parter. Taylor wrote both parts, and she actually directed the second part herself. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, having not been a fan of of Quincy for all that long, the, the the wedding episode maybe wasn't as big of a deal to me as it was to some. But I could tell that it was a big deal. It was a two parter and everything like that. Yeah, and it's it's kind of an interesting episode in that it's structured with like sort of a I don't know what would be the B plot or what would be the A plot, but the mystery here is the old guy from uh Psycho actually. <laughs> the guy who plays yep. the uh the the cop in, in Psycho who's like his name was Arbogast. They they go to his house, you know, and everything. Yeah. He he's uh, he dies in a nursing home and his his wife of sixty five years admits to killing him. And it's sort of like, you know, mirroring the story of like, okay, Quincy and Hanover are going to get married. And now here's a, a couple which has been married for 65 years. And the, the wife may have killed the husband. And, you know, there's that whole and thing. And by all on. appearances, they were miserable because they, they weren't exactly a loving couple at that 65th wedding anniversary party there. They reminded me a lot of my grandparents, actually. I you imagine know? after 65 years, one does get, it, you know. There, there are some old grievances that haven't, you know, if they haven't been worked out by that point, they're going to be sore points. They're going to stick around. Right. And it's almost like kind of shocking when you see them being loving towards each other. And you're like, wait, where did that come from? Uh-huh. Because you're just sort of like on each other's case, like nonstop. And it's like, but they, they do a good job with that here, which yeah. is another thing which I, I kind of wanted to bring up uh, in relation to, to Taylor's Star Trek work is this show, Quincy, in general seems to be really good at having characters which are of a certain age, you know? Whereas mm-hmm. I know that it's probably not as big of a, a thing back in 1982 or whatever, but now it's like everything has to be young, young, young. And mm-hmm. here's a show which is about like a bunch of like 50-somethings, you know, 40-somethings, 50-somethings. And and that's kind of a bold thing to do. I mean, I guess there are shows like that, like CSI and NCIS and everything like that. They tend to have older casts, but, you know, you don't see that too often on TV. And Taylor is actually someone who pushed for that hard in Next Generation. You know, she was the, the person who said, like, how come all of the extras on the Enterprise are all young? This is supposed to be, like, a job which people make careers out of. How about we get some 60-year-olds on the bridge, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's why you do see older people in, like, the last two seasons of Next Generation just walking around the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of cool, you know? I like that. I I agree with you. Uh, you know, and it's... Uh, I don't know that anybody... I mean, I, I CSI didn't start with, you know, an old an advanced age cast. Um you know, like I, they got Ted Danson on there now, and you know he's obviously a few years on. But when they started, the cast wasn't that advanced in age. They were, you know, late thirties, mid forties. But they, you know, they had the younger sidekicks off to the side working in the lab, so they had the mix of ages. Yeah, I can't see anybody launching a show like this now, where yeah. the main character 
is in his 50s and established and has a life and isn't just breaking into the business or isn't just um, isn't the maverick whiz or anything like that. Like this is just a guy who's made a career and his breadth of knowledge isn't because he's particularly gifted or a genius or anything like that. It's just that he knows his job and he knows what he's talking about. And so the character being this age lets him speak with that authority. It, and if you do that, you are going to have someone like William Peterson who is, you know, an older guy. But then, like you're saying, surround him with, like, the young techs and stuff like that who are who are going to do their thing. And I guess the thing with CSI is it's been on for so many years that now all the young people got old. But that happens. Watch them grow <laughs> up in front of our eyes like baby rattlesnakes. <laughs> yes, yes. Um now the the last episode of the show was also written by Taylor and that was The Cutting Edge which involves uh Barry Newman of I guess he was in Vanishing Point, right? But I know him from his The Limey. Yeah. Uh he 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 played the the uh, Peter Fonda's you know sort of like uh, oh right know, yes agent yes. or whatever in the limey he's such such a badass in that movie I, I'm sorry that movie's amazing anyway um, and he's uh, a a cutting edge uh, doctor in terms of I guess amputees or something I don't I, I don't know exactly don't what it would be I don't think that they say it's specifically. Uh, amputee, like they go, they have a couple of different procedures. He's, uh, uh, op, it's not Operation Hope, it's um, Experiment Hope. Experiment Hope, yes. And he's got this uh, group of brilliant physicians and surgeons on his staff that can do, he's trying to push them to do anything. And, uh, you know, he, he even has like a robotics person on staff. Who mm-hmm. can you know can work with uh, you know artificial limbs and stuff like that, which leads to some delightful moments of sexual harassment. Um, <laughs> that was weird. Yeah, that's like, that's definitely I, something of its time. <laughs> you know, I, I'm pretty sure that nobody in today's environment, with good reason, by the way, I'm not waxing nostalgic for anything like this. <laughs> but when when the one tech or whoever comes up behind the the woman who's working on, uh, you know. I, I guess the arm that's eventually going to become the prototype for the T-800 is sitting there working and he grabs an artificial arm and places on her on her butt and she jumps and, she, and she's like, oh, you. And he's like, oh, I just want to see if you could tell the difference between that and the real thing. I was like, "What? wow, this is, sensibilities that, have changed over time. That, that, that was really weird and I was surprised to see that in an episode that Taylor wrote too since she is sort of all about gender equality but maybe I guess you know the thing that they do is you know he's like oh I just wanted to see if blah 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 and she's like yeah no just leave bye you know right she she does fend him off uh verbally as it were she you know she she does she is a strong uh robot arm tech I guess I guess maybe in today's by today's standards it seems a little weak because today we would expect her to you know get the dude fired, but at a minimum her just being able to say like get out of here you know I don't have time for your crap I guess that's how things went back in the eighties. 
progress for its time. I guess so. Um, it, it really does seem like like they were setting up a new show. Um, and in yeah. fact, I just found some trivia here. This was not only the final episode of Quincy M.E., it also served as the pilot of a proposed series entitled The Cutting Edge, with many of the characters that were in this episode. Also, Anita Gillette, who played Quincy's wife, Dr. Emily Hanover, was to have become a regular on this series once Quincy went off the air. Oh, right, so, because there's that scene where she she uh, says she wants the job with the guy. Right. She's like, yeah. yeah, he's like, we need like a psychiatrist. And she's like, this sounds like great work to me. Yeah. And that show, it probably would have been, you know, created by Jerry Taylor, right? I mean, it had to have been. She and, wrote this episode. She theoretically created Hanover. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, we, honestly, it's a, it was a pretty decent pilot. You know, I, yeah. I do remember uh, partway through wondering when Quincy was going to come back. <laughs> Because he's in like the first two scenes and nowhere to be found. Absolutely right. nowhere to be found. And, until and the bas- end. And basically all of his supporting cast isn't in it and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And and I went into this episode thinking like, okay, this is the end of a series which has been on for eight years. We're going to be wrapping up everything. This is going to be really interesting. This is a really big uh, job for Taylor to to have here to wrap up a show which has been going for like 148 episodes and stuff mm-hmm. and then you watch it and you're like why are who are these people what is going on here yeah. and it really does feel like assignment earth i mean this is totally you know mm-hmm. assignment quincy <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh it's it's not surprising at all to me that that's what they were well, you almost doing. wonder, though, if she's producer and they see the writing on the wall and things are coming to a close, uh, is Quincy's wedding really the end of the series, in a sense, and the rest is just a, a denouement as it goes off into this little backdoor pilot, and they were just hoping, okay, we'll start a new show off of this. And maybe even that, I mean, honestly, the way that's set up is the guy who would have been lead there were elements of house to him, you know, where he was really driving and alienating people and his wife was estranged and his son had difficulties with it. They like, they set up all of these arcs for the semi antisocial guy who just fought too hard and and stuff like that. So yeah, it would have been an interesting show. I think It, it would have been. And, and also like if, if Hanover is on that show as a regular, right? I mean, she's married to Quincy. Right. So Quincy's got to show up, yeah, a couple every of guest once in a while at least, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I need Quincy's help, you know, to figure out how this kid lost his finger or something sure. like that. Yeah, or, or even if his role is just different, where it's like, well, now he's you know, just like the the house husband essentially, right? Yeah, you know? sure, sure. She she is what Hanover was in a sense, you know. I will say, though, something very interesting that that is that threw me at first was the guy who plays the heavy in Baby, Baby Rattlesnakes yes. plays the heavy in this episode. The guy I always confuse with Carl Reiner uh, <laughs> because there is a visual similarity there. And uh, like it, it was just it jarred me because he walked on. and I was like, oh, wow, they're going to find out the guy switched careers or something. And then the guy just looks at Quincy and goes, nice to meet you. I was like, wait, what? No, no, like this isn't like a guy who appeared on a different season 
or right. you know Star Trek did that all the time where you know how many roles did Mark Lennard and David Warner play over all of the series and movies yeah. and everything but you put them under different makeup and stuff right. and this I mean is, this was almost the same role it was almost the same it, suit he was pretty much in the same wardrobe <laughs> yeah and and like when I when I saw that I'm like I was sitting there watching it with my wife and I'm like this guy was in the first episode right. of the series. And I looked it up to make sure I was right. I'm like, no, he was in the first episode of this <laughs> season, you know? Right. He just bookended it with him. And that's crazy. Apparently, I was reading about, like, the uh, Anne Gillette, who played uh, Hanover. I guess she played, earlier in the show, she played Quincy's first wife, who dies of a brain tumor or something like that. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, but I guess they figure whatever people don't have VCRs, they can't check this stuff. You know, you know that's a, that's an excellent point, actually. That you know, huh? Yeah, that is an excellent point. I, you know, I almost wonder though. Like you look at a show like this, and uh, again, speaking to the to the era, there seemed to be a much smaller pool of TV actors for primetime dramas, mm -hmm. and that's why you saw the same people appearing in you know, just multiple series, it almost seemed like once you broke in, you, you know, I guess because there were fewer shows to work, there was, uh, you know, much more competitive field. And once you got there, you staked out your territory and your agent just got you on as many roles on, you know, as they possibly could. Yeah. And you look at people's credits and they're just, I mean, from that era mm -hmm. and, they're on every show, you know, hundreds of shows, right. just every week on a different show, which right. good for them. I mean, the, the, the guy who they always talk about is, you know, William Shallert, you know, who was <laughs> in Trouble with Tribbles and then later in Deep Space Nine. And he, you can find him on basically every show from that era. Right. He was never like a lead. Well, it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting because that, that sort of mimics live theater because you'll see, you know, when you go in the programs... Uh, the 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 other players, the non leads, always have these extensive biographies of how many shows they've been on on Broadway and television. You know, is you know, it's a teleplay, yeah. and so I, I think that yeah, with that smaller pool, it makes total sense why the why everybody was on everything. Yeah. All right. Well, just one more thing that I I want to note here is. Uh, kind of some of those people who were on it. I mean, there were just one in particular, which really kind of stood out to me, uh, was a Star Trek person. That's William Campbell, who played Koloth mm -hmm. on The Trouble with Tribbles, and then also Trelane in The Squire of Gothos. And he was in the wedding two-parter as, as a nursing home uh, executive or whatever. But then also in the very first episode that we watched, Baby Rattlesnakes, the accused is played by a prepubescent Devereaux White who played Argyle in Die yeah, Hard. I watch him every Christmas. <laughs> Me too. Every single Christmas. Baby Argyle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I couldn't help but, you know, just have in the back of my head, I was like, well... I know he gets a steady job, and he, you know, he the kid. This kid works it out for himself. But right, he's going to yeah. be in the wrong place at the wrong time in a few years. He's going to be driving a limo and everything yeah. like that. Yeah, well, that was pretty cool. All right, um, any final thoughts on on Quincy and Taylor's work on Quincy? Yeah, you know, I 
her episodes are, you know, you can see the seeds. You can see the beginning of, uh, you know, where she's going to go and what she's working with and sort of the thoughts, the themes that are going to tie her work together over time. And so that's always fun to watch. In terms of Quincy itself, it will always create that warm fuzzy. And I'm, you know, it's great they have it streaming on Netflix, but um, yeah, you know, it, it's it's an artifact. The show is an artifact. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, for me, you know, Taylor, I, I think that this is really interesting how she was kind of able to, even just as sort of a, a staff writer, although I think she was kind of higher up at this point on the show, she was really able to put her stamp on the series, on a series which had been running a very formulaic series from what I'm guessing, which had been running for eight years. And that's really cool. And, uh, you know, I think that it'll be interesting to see what she does on some of these other shows. And also in terms of Quincy, I guess my big takeaway from it and the thing which I, I was sort of riveted on throughout the series is I wish that I could be as excited about anything as much as, Quincy is excited about anything. I mean, like when he is, when someone's talking to him, he is so invested in that conversation and everything that they say is the most interesting thing he's ever heard in his life. I wish I could be that interested in anything. Yes. But maybe one day, (laughs) maybe one day. I highly doubt it though. All right, before we wrap this up, uh, I do just want to note Glenn A. Larson's contribution to television. He's not a Star Trek creator, but he's someone who I think most Star Trek fans are familiar with in in at least small ways. He just passed away uh, this week. He's the creator of Quincy and also Battlestar Galactica, the original. He was the developer on the Buck Rogers show, he also created Knight Rider, which takes place in Star Trek continuity, The Fall <laughs> Guy, and uh, Magnum P.I., which we'll be covering in, in a couple weeks. Yes. Uh, so obviously a, a, a huge contribution to the world of television. Battlestar Galactica, I mean, while it doesn't share a lot of similarities uh, to to the reboot, it did spawn what I personally think is the best television series of all time so you know you got to give him credit for that and he wrote this amazing theme song so yeah i you know just to to speak to the battlestar galactica that is one of those cultural touchstones that anybody who is a sci-fi fan of a certain age that original series is it filled a gap because again you know you didn't have star wars on videotape and battlestar that you know that's the sign of a pretty slick producer that he's able to say oh yes that i i can do that and and we can we can have a successful show i mean wasn't that successful unfortunately but yeah. uh did he have anything to do with galactica 1980 yeah he he created that too slightly um, tarnishes his image in my opinion then he was i mean you got to give him credit for just keeping the ship afloat you know i mean that was just sort of like desperation like yes, we will keep Battlestar Galactica on the show for another year, but your budget is $5. <laughs> so <laughs> see what you can do. And Fair that's enough. what he did. And, Fair you know, enough. 
what can you do? But, but yeah, so R.I.P. Glenn A. Larson. Anyway. Maybe he's sitting somewhere with uh, Gene Roddenberry dreaming up uh, the next great sci-fi series in, uh, in the next plane of existence. Perhaps. Let's hope so. Well, it's been fun this week talking about Quincy M.E., but this isn't the only thing we're talking about here on Trek FM, so here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. But instead of it being a human being prejudiced against Vulcans because the Romulans look like Vulcans, the Vulcans are taking advantage of themselves looking like Romulans in order to be racist against Romulans. Earl Grey. So, so he's got the two armrests, and the right one says little, you know, Ensign, you know, Lamont, and the little arrow, <laughs> and then the one on the on the left says Lieutenant Commander Data. <laughs> like a little arrow. Yep. The orb. But when they pull away from that window with Jake and Kira, and they pull away from the station, it's like they're closing the book. They're, they're actually closing the back cover of the book, and it's the end of the story. To the journey! How do you feel, Char, about the Borg Queen? Oh boy. I think the longer that I have watched Star Trek, the more I'm in the camp of, I don't know if I like her. The Ready Room. They want you to come across on Archer's side where he can be mad at Trip. But I have a really hard time being Archer being mad at Trip because just think of if we still treated, you know, people of a different race like this. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. That can honestly be the reason they brought Wesley, because Wesley's got nothing else going for him there. I mean, yes, he can lead those kids, but that's just going to be by virtue of his age. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, he's 15 years old. Of course, all the other kids are going to look up to him, at least for a while. And then if he ends up being a total tool, then they won't. Commentary, Trek stars. Yeah, yeah, well, Learning you know. Curve was never meant to be a season one finale. They were going to do the 37s, and then UPN wanted to open season two with it, and that totally didn't work either. Man, you got you to gotta say, UPN really ooped it up. Literary Treks. What Jerry Taylor talks about with Catherine Janeway's life is it's kind of a series of her relationships. I mean, she should be doing all sorts of fantastic things, right? And instead, we're learning about her boyfriends. Melodic Treks. But there's a whole host of, of people that appear in Star Trek. As I said, most of it is classic courses for the Vivaldi, Strauss, Trojkotsky, um, Harry Kim. The 602 Club. This really does have an impact on, I think, the entire you know, comic book world dark knight dark knight returns still have a huge impact in the way that people view batman today and that's what else is happening on trek.fm check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an apple user be sure to hit the subscribe button that helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search itunes if you're not an apple user we've got you covered as well you can find our shows on stitcher TuneIn, spreaker soundcloud windows phone and of course you can stream and download the mp3 files from our website and grab the rss link as well Uh, One way that you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n 
com slash trekfm you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you these perks include early access to content exclusive content producer credits seats on our content development team and more we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team again you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm if you'd like to contact us uh, you can fill out the form on uh, trek.fm slash contact. Uh, that'll go straight to us. You can also send us a voicemail. We still haven't gotten any of those voicemails. Come on, guys. You're making us look bad. Uh, just look at the sidebar of the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at trek.fm. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash trek.fm where there's you'll find the Babel Conference. That's spelled B-A-B-E-L. Uh, just type that into the search engine on Facebook and, and it'll pop up. So, John, uh, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me uh, investigating crimes uh, using science uh, on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E, and a little weekly show called uh, Words with Nerds, uh, prowling around the usual places, um, the weekly show that uh, I do with my buddy Craig. Excellent. And, and you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. And you can find uh, me on CommentaryTrackStars.com, where I do Commentary Track Stars off-topic with Max and our friend Brandon. And you can also find us all, of, for all practical purposes, at on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com if you just want to send us a direct something. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek stars, and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. You can even read a book which is based on a teleplay which... Glenn Larson is credited for, even if he didn't really write. That's the Battlestar Galactica miniseries, written by Jeffrey A. Carver. It's uh, five hours and two minutes long. That's like two hours longer than the miniseries itself. For 40 years, the 12 colonies of man experienced peace, united since the war against the man-made Cylons. The Cylons, mechanical beings created to uh, perform the manual labor civilization required were gone forever or so humanity thought dun, dun, dun. and since you listen to trek fm you can get this book for free as a trek fm listener you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great audible is just go to audibletrial.com slash trek fm and sign up today Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting commentary, Trek Stars, and the network. Well, that's about it for Jerry Taylor's work on Quincy M.E., and we will be back next week to discuss her work on Blue Thunder. Hello and welcome to. Oh shit! I'm already. I'm already. Okay. All right. Sorry. Sorry. Right. Clear the mechanism. <laughs> That's from 
for love of the game. The best baseball movie ever made. This is what I've been saying for the past 15 years. Absolutely. Well, until Moneyball came out. That I haven't movie seen is Moneyball. freaking amazing. You haven't seen Moneyball? No. Oh, check out Moneyball. It's amazing. Okay. All right. But, but for love of the game, yes, I totally agree with you. Up until 2011, it was the best baseball movie ever made. That thing's uh, and yeah. Sam Raimi's best movie too. Totally agree. He had thank yeah, you. That, that high is, five. Yeah, high All five. All right. <laughs> yep. He he had complete control of every one of his faculties in that one. Yes, I agree. Man, I'm sticking this somewhere in something. Because <laughs> finally, 15 years for someone to agree with me. But all right, you've been wandering in the desert. <laughs> okay. Anyway, all right. where were we 